for the week of February 7th, 2021. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 528, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jace Berling Reich. And high above the top of Paramount Plus Mountain, I'm Michael Giltz. It's oh, cold up here. You know what? I didn't know. Were you one of the people that was there with, with Stephen Colbert? And- I was right behind Beavis and Butthead. You didn't see me? Oh, you know, that happened so fast. You went by so fast. Oh. I didn't know. Well, here's a fun fact. As the Super Bowl began, the CBS all-access streaming service crashed. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> to, to which they then said, never heard of it. CBS. I don't know what that is, but Paramount Plus is coming soon and that's going to be great. Forget everything you know about <laughs> CBS All Access that has nothing to do with Paramount Plus. And for anybody outside the United States, it was the Super Bowl American football, which is actually played with your hands and I guess your feet. But, uh, you know, during the the Super Bowl, there was like a running advertising campaign for Paramount Plus coming March 3rd, streaming near you. It has to be the biggest campaign of the night. Yes, there are often ads that build on each other or keep going or 14 types of Budweiser beer. This was the ad of the night, ad campaign of the night, I should say. As always, the Super Bowl, not an exciting game. I didn't like the halftime show. I don't know about you. I thought the sound quality was poor at the beginning. And then when they fixed it, clearly they switched mics or something. I thought the weekend still sounded buried too much in the mix. Yes. It just was not a dynamic vocally. I could barely hear him singing. If uh, I know he was singing live because the sound was so bad at first, but I kind of, you know, I was like, is he singing live? Because it it just did not sound great. In this instance, he was singing live because they knew that there would be way too much that was going on close. Like it would mm-hmm. be way too yeah. easy to tell. So he had yeah, you to couldn't get on. away with it. No, and, and he did he have fine, a click track backup. Just, yes, he did. He had a click track uh, backup without a doubt. For sure. Of course, that's just what you would do in that type of echoey situation. That's not a, a, a slur on his vocals. It oh, just no. didn't sound that good. And the audio, that's number one. Also, showmanship 101. He's wearing a red jacket. It's like his signature glisteny glowy red jacket and then when he's on the ground and stuff he's surrounded for a lot of the show by all these other dancers wearing a similar red jacket it's his signature look they're echoing it but the fact is if the camera's not right on top of him you don't know where he is you can't see him you don't know where to look you know he's the show he's the star it, he should be in red and they should all be in white or black or something so that he stands out and you're always seeing him but a lot of times when the camera pulled back a little bit i i was like where is he you know That's what? I, I said the same exact thing. I thought, wait, should they be wearing red or should they not? Mm-hmm. Obviously, wearing white is a problem for the camera's sake. The the exposure mm-hmm. is, an, is a bit of an issue. But like what but other a, color? A different color. The fact that you uh, and any- I are both talking about the weekend's halftime show and what the backup dancers, which there were like, what, like a hundred or more, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we're talking about what their wardrobe should be means it must have worked <laughs> because we were all watching the Pepsi halftime show. Well, it, it got an audience, but doesn't mean it was a success, though. The reviews have been uniformly across the board strong. Uh, I think they're wrong, but so what? That's why you come to us. We're contrary. We give you information you can't get anywhere else or a point of view you don't hear that much. What are we going to talk about this week, Sperling? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are launching a campaign to get Bruce Springsteen to endorse endorse our podcast. Preferably, yeah, preferably he'll be doing it while driving an electric Jeep 
because we'd like to say <laughs> we're a green podcast. So, you know, for those of you who watch the Super Bowl, you'll know what we're talking about. Uh, we're going to know whether he's going to do this for us around the year 2031 or so. So we'll let you know how that's going. Yeah, yeah. It took a decade for Jeep to land Bruce. Yeah. Yeah, well, it worked. Uh, the Super Bowl ads, again, were shown in, in, in their weird way of things. People bemoaned that the ads just weren't like they used to be. But Showbiz Sandbox says, that's right. We think the long battle between writers and agents is over, and we'll discuss what that means. The SAG Award nominations came out, and we'll discuss what that means about the Oscars and whether anyone should pay attention to the Golden Globes anymore. I'm sorry, what are the Golden Globes? Can you remind me? (laughs) Uh, Anyway, in streaming news, Nielsen is changing the charts it presents to the world, highlighting the top streaming properties of the week. It won't be the last time, and Michael is, of course, not happy. On Inside Baseball, we will dive into some letters from our listeners. That's right. You can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And you know what? If you called and left a voicemail, we'd play that too. You can call us, 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. Now, two of these letters weighed in on the debate Michael and I had about movie going and ticket sales. And <laughs> I was totally, I think I was right. I'm not sure. I'm not very good at math. Well, Michael concede <laughs> when it's uh, three to one. Uh, you know what? My, I, I am not a betting person, but if I were, I'd say don't bet bet on it. Don't count on it. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines, or at least two of them. But first, as always, we turn it, turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world as best we can. India is about to open up. We'll get to that in a minute, but I don't think we have any new charts yet. No, we don't. Not really. So uh, India, we're waiting for those charts to come back on board. We know films are going to be released there soon if they're not already. So if you've got information on the Indian charts, do reach out to us. Sperling just gave you the information. Comscore, come back online. You know what? Anyway, I think in Comscore's defense, I think they well, are. Yeah, they're not allowed to. They're you know, not allowed. That's don't. right. Right, right. They're being yeah. asked not to buy their, the people that pay them, the studios. That's a big mistake. Anyway, I don't think there's a single new movie on the chart this week. So it's a slow period in general for box office, but even slower than usual because it's Super Bowl weekend in North America. Few people want to open up a movie that weekend unless it's some female rom-com. The number one movie around the world is in China, of course. It's Shockwave 2, the Andy Lau thriller. That grows to $11 million, and it's at $213 million worldwide. Soul, the Pixar film, that's at another $11 million as well. That's about to pass the $100 million mark. At number three is Big Red Envelopes, another Chinese drama. That made about $10 million this week, so that's holding well. That's made $35 million so far, though we don't know what the budget is. We doubt it's that expensive. At number four is A Little Red Flower, another modestly budgeted Chinese film. That's the Kids with Cancer movie. Not to be flippant, but Young People in Love and Dying. It made $9 million this week. That's at $235 million worldwide. Only a Japanese film has grossed more money worldwide that's on the charts this week. At number five is Wonder Woman 1984, another $5 million. That's at $155 million worldwide. We'd love to know how it did its second week on HBO Max. HBO made a big fuss of saying, hey, hey, Nielsen, check out our numbers here. You want to think twice because we beat Seoul that opening weekend of Christmas Day. Like, okay, they looked at the numbers, they confirmed them, they put it on the charts. The next week, crickets. 
That tells you people probably did not stay on top of that movie since they did it the first week. I'm sure if it had really done well on streaming that second week, instead of having a big tumble, they would have said, hey, look at the numbers for this week, too. At least that's what we have to believe until you share your information. Or, you know, I think that there's uh, kind of a, a hoarder effect going on. And what I mean by that is people will be like, oh, I can totally watch. I'll totally catch up on that. Kind of like, we're all going to pay our taxes. Come January 1st, we're all going to start getting our receipts in order and start getting our, our taxes ready. And when do we do it? April 14th. So I, I think that people think, oh, I have time to watch that. And then they never do. Well, they may never do it or they will do it. That's why we keep looking at streaming numbers and TV numbers. We don't care about the overnights. We want to know where it's at two weeks or a month later because that's the best information. Wonder Woman 1984, I'm sure, took a tumble in week two because the reviews were poor. I don't think the fans liked the movie, so everyone who did watch it said, eh, don't bother. At number six is Warm Hug, a Chinese comedy. That made another $5 million, $142 million. So the Chinese market is shutting down a bit. They're decreasing capacity in cities and areas where COVID is flaring up again. But they are still making good money. Wish Dragon, the U.S. Chinese co-production, that made another $5 million. We'll be able to see that on Netflix sometime soon. But it's in China, and it's making a very modest $25 million total. Denzel Washington and Rami Malek have a thriller out. It's The Little Things. $5 million this week. It's at $13 million and counting. Now here comes that Japanese film that's beaten Big uh, A Little Red Flower. And most any other movie in Japan's history, it's Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train or Infinity Train. It made another $2 million. It's at $388 million worldwide. It's the top grossing film in Japan of all time. Good for them. The Marksman, Liam Neeson, that made another $2 million. The Soul, a Taiwanese crime drama, that made $1 million. And a hustle bustle New Year. It will be the New Year in China, in China on February 12th, the 11th and 12th. That's the beginning of like a multi-day festival for the New Year. We're seeing strong early ticket sales for some movies that will be opening up that week. So it's looking like box office will be strong. Uh, it may not be as big as it could be because of some of those lockdowns, or if that may not be the right term, some of those decreased capacities in movie theaters. But people want to go to the movies, and a Hustle Bustle New Year is poised to make a few extra bucks. That's right. The Chinese New Year begins yeah, February 12th. It's the year of the ox. It lasts 16 days, but only the first seven days are a public holiday. And I'm pretty sure that what we'll be getting is Detective Chinatown 3 topping the charts. That's right. Yeah. That's right. A and uh, I think uh, a couple of other movies are coming out only in cinemas here in the U.S., which is kind of a, an unusual feat these days. Uh, mm -hmm. So next week we have Land, which I, uh, is Robin Wright's, I believe it's her directorial debut, uh, which yes, was at yes. Sundance, uh, starring Damien Bashir and, of course, Robin Wright. And I saw over the weekend The World to Come, which was a Venice Film Festival entry last year. And it it, uh, it was directed by Mona Fastvold, and I think I am pronouncing that right. It stars Catherine Waterston and Vanessa Kirby and Casey Affleck and Christopher Abbott. It's kind of a period drama, and if you like period dramas, uh, this is definitely going to be one for you. It's uh, you know takes place in the was it good? You know, it was it was fit. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed it, uh, and it didn't overstay its welcome. I love a film that like knows like okay, we should be over now. <laughs> well, Indian cinema is not over. It's coming back. They are back at 100% capacity. The entire country last week, uh, uh, or, or last week or in a single day, had just 10,000 new cases, less than the UK and some US states. They've got some 
massive herd immunity going on there or widespread antibodies. Scientists really aren't quite sure all the different factors that have allowed India to be in so much better shape than other countries. They're trying to figure that out, but they feel comfortable opening up movie cinemas back to 100% capacity. So they're going to start to see a stream of movies. I think April is when the big guns start to come out. I'm not quite sure why some aren't ready for March or February, but that's what we're hearing. In contrast, LA County, has been shut down for a year come March. So we're almost at one full year of a shutdown in L.A. County. In North America, the, the Denzel Washington flick was the top movie with very modest grosses. And the top four venues were drive-ins. That's, yeah, that's you know, the world that we're in right now. And I'm waiting for there to be some somewhat of a revolt in L.A. County uh, and, and really Southern California. You can kind of feel the pent-up kind of angst. Although I will say, I think but before the that, numbers aren't good, right? The numbers aren't good. They're, they're, I know they're tired better. and exhausted. Yeah. Well, not that quickly. Right. But yeah, yeah they're getting you better. don't want to jump back too quickly. Oh, we've had one week down. Yeah. But you're still at a really high level. Yeah. But it has so literally don't... been a year, one year and I'm living in this. So I, I, the, the movie theater down the street has literally been closed for now 11 months, one week. Well, that's dreadful for the film industry. That's dreadful for the businesses, but that is not something that you know, life can go on without you going to a movie. I do wonder know. though, d you know, are the cases, I, I wondered this by the way, when the cases were skyrocketing, are those real numbers? I wonder that in the U S sometimes when, so, you know, some of these numbers come out, I'm like, is that we know the numbers are much, much worse than they are. We know that the numbers are vastly underreported. The United States has very poor testing. So I've just seen a couple studies. One wasn't peer reviewed yet, but uh, other scientists looked at it and said it looked legit and good, but no, you can multiply by five or 10, depending on what stage of the pandemic you're in, in terms of how many people have actually gotten COVID, how many people are infectious, how many people are getting sick. We're way under reporting what's going on. So no, but I mean, that's in just India, because we are have those no numbers testing. correct? Oh, well, th yes, there doesn't seem to be an issue of under reporting. Uh, it, it seems to be an issue of it had already spread widely. Um, oh, okay. but so people had, you know, it's a, there's a lot of complicated reasons. It's not simply that the government, which is something to certainly keep in mind, the Modi government is a repressive government. So they're, they're in the mood to say we're doing great, but yeah, they had a really horrible fall, but then they very quickly came back down again and it doesn't seem to be an issue of government, you know, fudging. So we'll have to see, but we do, we have heard something we have seen a, the end of the war, haven't we? Yes, in 1917. Oh, that war. Yes. <laughs> what happened? What happened? I didn't, well, uh, so they, of course, have been, the Writers Guild of America has been fighting with all the agencies, and they finally got the last big agency to agree to no longer take packaging fees when they put television shows together and no and longer own affiliated production companies, although they can still own a, an affiliated production company just up to 20%, which seems, you know, that seems fair, especially since when you look at the end of some of these Sundance movies, Endeavor content was out there, you know, helping sell all of them. Mm -hmm. So William Morris Endeavor, WME, signed its agreement with the WGA. I, I feel like it's signed on the dotted line, but nonetheless, we've heard so many times from one side, oh, we've got a deal that I'd really like to see them shaking hands in public and clapping each other on the back and know that it's really done. It's been two years, almost two years, since they launched a battle to change the way agencies do business, and they have succeeded. Now, we can argue that, well, packaging isn't nearly as important as it used to be, and that the production companies, well, they still got a piece of them, but the fact is, it is a fundamental change in the business, uh, and we're going to see directors and actors push for the same rights, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a big significant change. I mean, there's still a lot of money in packaging. 
aren't there? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Nobody, so you, I, I, we actually had a letter that I should have uh, highlighted. Oh, uh, but it was more. It was it was a very uh, t- quick letter, uh, and somebody else explained this to me too, who listens to to the show, and they said, "Listen, one of the reasons for packaging fees was because you had shows that would last." 10 years, nine years, eight years. And you wanted the agencies to continue putting writers into these, and whether they were young or not, into these shows. And they might be up and coming writers, or they might be writers that didn't have the uh, kind of cachet that, that, that you had at the very start of a show, or when you were starting a show, you wanted it to be staffed up. And so, and, and by the way, it wasn't always with you know, big salaries. But if a show if a show is a hit and it's running three or four or five years, they don't have any trouble finding any writers they want. And every agency is is incentivized to try to get their writers on Cheers and the Cosby Show and the Big Bang Theory. I mean, what is there's no barrier to them wanting to get their writers on a hit yeah, but show. The, you're is you're now saying that like, you know, what about three well, minutes? You said if it's eight you said eight, nine, ten years down the road. Well, then everybody wants to be on that show. So why does what's that's not the value of packaging the packaging was really them saying let's make it easy for you studios here's everything you need we got your director we got your star we got your writer and it's all from us caa and we're we're going to continue backing it and make money yeah now what here's the thing that that happened some of these shows they're not lasting three years four years if you notice the on a streaming show the contracts get renegotiated in the fourth year not the f- not right. the now in in so for the fourth season, not the fifth season. In most standard television contracts, it was a a four year contract, and then in the fifth season, if you were still there, you would renegotiate, and that's when all you, you were see. you were hitting syndication. But it also was renegotiated in the first year when you had a big hit on your hands, right? You know, Sometimes yes. nobody sat on their hands. No, you got the ER. You have the Cosby Show. Everybody's deal gets changed year two, <laughs> so there's no hard and set rule. But no, yeah, it's a different the- world now. Contracts are different. If you're selling a movie or a TV show to a streamer, it's an entirely different financial situation than if you're selling to CBS and you got a package. If you got Clarice on CBS, packaging still matters. And there's still a lot of shows going to the major networks, going to cable. Streamers are not the only game in town. So packaging is still a significant deal. And the fact that they made this change, I think, is important. Well, it'll be interesting to see how moving forward, whether that changes the way shows get put together. I hope so. I hope that, you know, it starts to be more about what's best for the show and what the creator wants rather than, hey, we can shove another one of our clients on it. And that's always going to be the incentive. Even if they're not getting a pack, they're always going to want to just put more of their clients on the show, right? They're not going to want to put other people's clients on the well, show. That, that, so that, 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 that incentive, right. So that incentive for CAA has not gone away. So they're still going to want to put all their people on a single show because then they make more money. So it doesn't solve all problems in the world, but it is a big change. Uh, We also have some social justice updates. Trump quit SAG-AFTRA. He was a member of SAG-AFTRA, and they were meeting to discuss kicking him out of the union. And he said, you can't kick me out. I quit. The one thing I like about this is this is obnoxious. They released a one-sentence statement to the press, and it said, thank you. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It just said, thank you. (laughs) And they didn't pass a resolution saying, "Mm mm-hmm. You know, he said, you know what? Uh, you're fired. 
He basically yeah, said, yeah, yeah. "Get it, SAG after you're fired." Yeah, but yeah. now, speaking of speaking of statements, you wanted a, a handshake between SAG and w, WME. Well, the a writers, wave, a yeah. socially distanced wave. <laughs> yeah the the uh, the Writers Guild of America released like a two thousand word statement explaining the deal. That's about oh. as much of a handshake as you're gonna. I mean, that is like, <laughs> hey, we're endorsing this. This is where we're at. Like, this is real. All right. Well, Army Hammer, speaking of WME, the, the, he was dropped by that company on the same day they signed their deal with the WGA. He's got a whole career personality and public issue problem going on. People are like, oh, they don't want him on the romantic comedy if he has to talk about how he's not a cannibal. Uh, he has an alleged Instagram account detailing some very creepy sexual fantasies. A number of women have come forward saying he crossed the line with them in different ways. Uh, he's got a lot of problems. But what's his next step? I don't know. But Nick Cannon, show what you can do. Take time away. Rebuild your image. Do the work. And maybe convince people you're sincere. Well, he's going to be back on MTV's Wild and Out. In contrast, Marilyn Manson, who Evan Rachel Wood finally came public and said explicitly, this man has beaten and mentally abused me when we were together. Uh, he's been dropped by his longtime manager. That's just the latest fallout from what's uh, been going on with Marilyn Manson. And similarly, Morgan Wallen, WME had a big week. He's also been dropped. They dropped Morgan Wallen, the country superstar. His album is number one again this week. Sales grew the day after his infamous video showing him using the N-word came out. Not in a, a, a bit of hate, but he's using the N-word in a casual way that people aren't happy with. And he's paid a big price. But his sales, that's not the one place he, you know, he was dropped from country music television. He was dropped from Spotify playlists. He was dropped from radio stations. People wouldn't play his songs. But album sales went up. Someone said, he used the N-word? I'm going to buy that album. <laughs> now, the, the trades love to say that sales skyrocketed or they exploded. They increased 500%, a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah, relax. Sales is not where it's at. Uh, the day before this happened, he sold about a thousand copies of his catalog titles. The day after, he sold 8,000. Now, that is an 800% or whatever increase. It's a huge increase, but you're, you're only talking 8,000 albums. So it's not really that much. The next day after that, it probably dropped back down again, but nobody's talking about that. He also sold 14,000 worth of singles the day after compared to 4,000 the day before. So that just tells you mostly, yeah, sales is not that important anymore. Well, as and we will contrast, discuss later in the, in the show, rising quickly is not necessarily what you want to do, much like falling quickly isn't what you want to do. Like these rapid changes, not always something great. Well, sales increasing a lot is good, but if you take that percentage and say, wait a second, step back, what are the actual numbers? You go, yeah, that's not so impressive. 8,000 copies of an album. <laughs> that's true, you know, too. And once yeah. upon a time, it would barely get you on the Billboard 200. Now it probably gets you in the top 10. But here's a good story from country music. Uh, the same week this was all happening to Morgan Wallen, country star T.J. Osborne of the Grammy-winning Osborne Brothers came out, and everybody was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so all right. that's nice to see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Moving on. A lot of reboots and remakes. Sorry. We have not done years. this in, in, when was the last time we did a reboots, remakes and, 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 and yeah. pro hot properties. Well, yeah. this one is, this one is fun. The Wonder Years is getting a reboot from Lee Daniels. So it will be people of color, I assume. Kate and Allie is getting a reboot. Female friendship, always, Wait, a, always Kate a constant. And Allie is, aren't they like 95 years old? It Kate won't, it'll be new people. It will be new people. Can't it's just the just idea of two women like two coming together to raise their kids. Why, when you can use the name Kate and Allie? <laughs> Nobody's going to even know you who that is. Well, old people will. Okay, fine. Wakanda, the TV series. That's coming to Disney+. Plus. 
And this is nutty. Little Yachty, the rapper, is developing a heist movie based on the card game Uno. Uno. They're making a movie based on Uno. I don't get it. It's supposed to be a comedy. I guess it'll make sense at some point. And hey, the card game was developed in a barbershop, so good for little Yachty to be involved. But that makes no sense. Even less sense. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, the bizarro spoof of soap operas that was a flash in the pan, massive hit for two years in the 1970s. The, one of the stranger shows you will ever watch. It's a really Wait, nutty show. the show is show. called Mary Hartman? Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yes, because okay. do you not know this show? I have no idea what you're talking. I thought you were talking about the person who hosted uh, Entertainment Tonight. No, no, not Mary Hart. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. This is this oh, is a, okay. a, a spoof of soap opera starring Louise Lasser from the 1970s. It's from Norman Lear. It aired in syndication. They made like 300 episodes in two years, and it flamed out because Louise Lasser left. But it was a phenomenon at the time. Soap in prime time appeared with Billy Crystal just after this show ended, doing a similar thing, but in a softer, more palatable way. It was an odd, odd show. She was a depressive, sad woman who spoke in a monotone. Oh, I don't know what's going on. And you're like, what is this? What am I watching? But it was combined with crazy soap opera annex. It's one of the strangest shows ever. And they're doing a reboot of that. You're like, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, you can't do a reboot of that. But they are. And the hottest property, of course, is GameStop. We've already hinted at it in this show. They're doing a documentary on GameStop, plus three fiction films are in the works. <laughs> you get a GameStop film, and you get a GameStop film. <laughs> exactly. And HBO Max is doing one. I thought it was a scripted series. Then it seemed like they were describing, I don't know whether it's a two-part miniseries or whether it's just a TV movie, but there seemed to be at least three films and a documentary in the works one of them may be a TV series, but we've got a link to a story in Washington Monthly. Before you get all crazy and commit to a romantic David and Goliath story, you might want to check out this analysis that, that shows pretty definitively, yeah, this is not a story about guys with 20 bucks buying a stock and you know shifting the market. This is about big players pumping and dumping a stock. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in, in sales in a single day. This isn't stuff that you know little guys can do in their backyard on a, on a Robin Hood app. We're talking big players with big pockets. There may have been stock manipulation, but the little guys, they were not the real story. And it's a pretty convincing take. Yeah. And when the SEC looks into this, as they are going to do, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, people could go to jail over this. Right. And we're talking about, well, no, they won't go to jail because nobody on Wall Street ever goes to jail. Good point. So, no, they won't go to jail. They will pay a fine that will probably be less than the money they made off manipulating the stock. And they do yeah, this every true. day. So this isn't anything new. It was cool that Summer of Soul was sold. The, the, the documentary from Sundance, which I'd love to see, okay. that sold to Hulu and Searchlight. They got a record $12 million, the most ever for a documentary. It will have a theatrical release of some sort. I actually saw the film finally, Summer of oh, Soul. Oh, cool. Yeah. Talk to me. Was it good? It was very good. I mean, to see Stevie Wonder, and I'm not, this isn't a spoiler. It comes in the first like 30 seconds of the movie. Stevie Wonder playing the drums, flying the family stone. It's pretty remarkable to see all of these people during the summer of 1969 when they were, you know, young and starting out in their careers in many, in most instances, in they, New York City. big acts. A lot of them were big acts. Well, they yeah, no, like Stevie Wonder newcomer. was huge. Stevie Wonder was huge. Sly and the Family Stone, you could tell he was the headliner. Let's put it that way. He was okay. definitely a headliner. Uh, you had, uh, wow, just so many acts. 
I was right. a little surprised. Nina Simone. Nina you know, Simone. Yeah, a lot of people. And she had a great set. All, all at in Harlem during like successive weekends in 1969, a month before you you had uh, Woodstock. The people were landing on the moon during this. In fact, and so that happened. The moon landing happened during all of this. I now all of this footage was shot 50 years ago and was only put together by Amir Questlove. I, I can't, I don't, I can't remember his last name, but Questlove directed Amir Khalib Thompson. Yeah, he directed the documentary. He put all the footage together, uh, and it's really, really a lot of fun. It's very cool. Interesting. I can't, I can't wait to check it out. Well, I also can't wait to check out the SAG nominations. Uh, I'm not skipping over the ARP. We'll get to that in a second. We've got the SAG nominations. You've heard about them all. They did a, a good job in representing people of color in a year when those movies really dominated their best film or the best ensemble, as they call it. Those are Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Minari, One Night in Miami. All four centered around people of color in one way or another. And then The Trial of the Chicago 7, a classic SAG film with a big ensemble all-star cast. Uh, off the top of my head, I'd say that probably is a front runner just for that reason alone. Uh, which one? The Trial of the Chicago 7? Yeah. Yeah. Given, given all the nominations it got and, yeah. uh, and, 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 the, and the cast, it just feels like a SAG film. Yeah, although I think Chadwick Boseman uh, will wind up winning all of the awards this year for outstanding performance, just because it's you know he's he's no longer well, with us. No, don't forget, you know, he's got a lead in one movie and a supporting in another. That can have you. People might give you one as a well. I'll give him the supporting in Defy Bloods. Uh, and because they like someone else or people split their votes. One person says, oh, no, I want him to do lead. And a lot of other people say, I'll give him supporting. Those things can trip you up. You know, when you're nominated in two categories, that's not always the best thing. Usually you get one as a consolation prize if you're not going to win lead. I mean, Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal is a very strong contender. He's certainly a better performance, I think, by most people's standards than Chadwick Boseman in Ma Rainey. That's almost more of a supporting term. What about term, Anthony really. Hopkins? Do you think Anthony well, Hopkins kind of comes in as a? Uh, as it's, a, it's a I, I don't, I don't, not really. But then I didn't like the play, so I'm biased against the film. I know I didn't see it last year at Sundance because you told me not to. Well, we know what SAG voters are like. They love good, flashy performances. They love seeing an all-star cast or people doing something different. What are the AARP voters like, Sperling? Uh, movies about old people that are retired, it's preferably. Is that what they dominated I, on? No, I have no idea. I put that in there kind of like a, because I knew you wanted to talk about what's more important, SAG or the Golden Globes in regards to whether they predict the Oscars. And I was my joke was going to be, aha, you're forgetting the AARP uh, oh. awards. So just for those outside the U.S., the AA, AARP is the American Association of Retired People. So it's kind of a senior citizens organization. And they uh, they went after the trial of the Chicago 7 and the Five Bloods. They led all the nominations. Yes, and they and they don't have any particular track record of picking winners because they no. haven't been around that long. And then they have nothing to do with Guild Awards. I really don't think we should talk about the Golden Globes anymore. They seem so unimportant. I frankly think anybody that's not a Guild Let's not just, you know, the New York film critics, the LA film critics, maybe just because they're the biggest and they have the longest track record. And that's where every movie opens. But Toronto, Chicago, Boston, God bless you all. More power to you. Have fun doing your awards. The Golden Globes, the Online Critics Award, the blah, blah, you know, who cares? If it's not a guild or it's not the BAFTAs, 
I really think we should just say, you know, the ones that matter are the that groups that contain people who actually vote for the Oscars. That means SAG, Writers Guild, DGA, uh, cinematographers, all those guilds deserve attention. The Golden Globes is so random and unimportant. Yes, if someone gives a great speech, that can help them. People can say, oh, I love that. Though now we all see them all so much. Even that's no fun because you give that speech 10 times before you get to the Oscars. So that's my feeling. I don't know how you feel. What do you think, Sperling? I think I think some of the critics' awards are are kind of interesting. Uh, and I'm trying to They're find. Okay, yeah. here it is. Here it is. I'm trying to find. You probably hear me rustling papers because I'm, I'm trying to find. I can't show it to, because this is audio only. But everybody in LA, I would say over the past month or so, ha- got really excited when they went to check <laughs> their mail because the Academy. You see this thing? It says the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences right here on the letter and on the envelope, the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences, a big envelope, like an official envelope came in the mail and it says, you're invited. I'm like, and you rip open the envelope before you can (gasps) even, and it's a letter that says invited right on it. And then when you actually start reading about it, it's, Oh, I can be a, a founding member of the Academy Museum of. Yeah. Okay. So everybody, everybody was so excited. And there was like a little bit of a meme going around saying, I thought I got in finally. No, you've been invited to <laughs> donate to the Academy Museum. That's it. Yes. Well, that's not as fun, is it? Yeah. Oh, wait. They don't have enough podcasters in there. Exactly. Now, I'm pretty sure you probably said big deal, didn't you? And you were trying to. Throw no, I didn't. Oh, no, I didn't. Okay. I, I thought it's maybe time, it's time for Netflix streaming. Wait, what? Netflix is for streaming charts. I mean, come on. The, the, the Super Bowl was dominated by ads for streaming services. So we got to talk about the streaming charts. We're looking at the week of December 28th through January 3rd. It's a list compiled by Netflix that covers some of the viewing in North America, basically in home on your TV, not on any other portable devices. And it's just covering Amazon, Disney Plus, Hulu, and Netflix. They're going to add others on when they can. And it's right around the end of Christmas holiday season and the New Year's. That's how long it takes to get this information. I don't know why, but they've got a new chart and they split it up. They have one chart for original series and specials. They have another chart for movies and they have another chart for acquired series. Is that why there's all these movies here? Because I'm looking at this going, why is Rango trending? (laughs) Why is Rango trending? That's a number eight piece for some reason. People watched Rango a bunch a few weeks ago. Maybe because Amazon promoted it. That's probably why. For some reason, they just pushed it up no, to the you top. Know what? Just I like think 17 again on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I think it's... It, remember, this is we're talking about a month ago. People were still on their Christmas holidays. And I think it was, uh, kids, we're in our second week of the Christmas holiday season. I am done with you. Please watch a movie. Well, yes, <laughs> but why did they the choose Ran- why did they choose Rango? I bet it was just something that the algorithm pushed up to the top to see if they would be interested, and it worked. That's yeah, just a thought. Knows? But anyway, I like these charts. I like the breakdown, but they also need a chart that combines all of them together because people don't say what was the top show of the week. Well, I mean, in, in new series, not in you know. I wish they had a, a chopped hundred chart for all of television. I've said this a long time. I don't care if Judge Judy's on in four in the afternoon. If that's reaching 12 million people, then that should be on the list of the best shows on, you know, the highest rated shows on TV. If late night's getting 6 million and it's bigger than primetime shows, there's no reason for all that division. I hate the fact that we have afternoon listings and primetime and late night and news and all these stuff are in different silos. 
I'd love a list of all of them together. I've been trying to get one for years, but now, of course, it's all about streaming. So I combined the list. I combined all the lists. So the number one show in all formats for for streaming was Bridgerton on Netflix. 2.65 billion minutes reviewed. Remember, there's only eight episodes. So when you look at, say, The Office, just leaving Netflix, this was the last few days on Netflix, almost a billion minutes reviewed. But of course, there's hundreds of episodes of The Office compared to just eight for Bridgerton. So you can see Bridgerton, a lot of different people are watching that show. It's still an accomplishment for The Office that's in the top 10 on this streaming chart. So it's Bridgerton, Cobra Kai, both on Netflix, Soul on Disney+, Plus, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, that final season just dropped right that week. That's why it's back on the charts at number nine with, I mean, number four with 961 minutes. Then The Office, Grey's Anatomy, Schitt's Creek, The Crown, New Girl, and Criminal Minds. Why I is like New the Girl breakdown. trending all of a sudden? Even my kids are watching it all of a sudden. I'm like, why are you watching this? Again, it might be something that they tried to push and got success with. It might be spillover from some Zoe Deschanel project or the fact that her Christmas album or videos get played a lot around Christmas time when she duets with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, adorably so, on What Do You Do in New Year's Eve? I don't know. But it's a really good show. Uh, she's got new projects going on. Maybe something caught fire or once people started watching it and word spread, then they start pushing it up. You know, if a small subset all start watching Friends again, they'll tell their friends and suddenly, hey, people are starting to watch Friends. They put it up higher on the list and other people start watching and it catches fire. You know, that's just the way it happens. But you're right. There's a story to be told behind all of these. So it's interesting to wonder why Rango popped up a new girl. We don't know. If you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. And uh, we're also on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Now, you said something there. You said catching fire, which which made me think about what's going on in Myanmar right now. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole coup d'etat, not not politics, but what's remarkable to me is, do you know what one of the protests is? Holding up mm. three fingers, like in the in the Hunger Games. Oh, yeah, in the Hunger Games. Yeah, they've been doing that for a while. And I thought, wait a second, was Hunger Games that much of a hit in Myanmar that they're they're copying that? Well, we've talked about that before. It's 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 trended for a while. People have used memes from Harry Potter. They've used memes from the Hunger Games. It was a big hit all over the world. It was mm -hmm. a big deal, really. Uh, it, it was. And, you know, write us a letter or something. It's no big deal, but we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> That's true. And it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop at this point, since I think I heard Big Deal like three or four or five times. Uh, now, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Here is our first story. Our first story is about a guy who tells us stories, or at least is in charge of the people who tell us stories, usually ones that are real. And what I'm talking about is Jeff Zucker. He isn't going anywhere. He's the head of CNN. He's not going anywhere until he does. That's the news from CNN where Zucker said he seriously thought he'd be leaving the 24-hour cable news channel at the end of 2020. But then he kind of changed his mind. Now Zecker says he is still fully engaged and excited about the challenges and opportunities ahead. But he thinks he'll be leaving at the end of the year. Maybe. Probably. He thinks. Not sure. Uh, anyway, uh, I think one of those challenges is now that Donald Trump is gone, you're going to have to actually maintain your ratings. Good luck. Big deal or big whoop? 
<laughs> I feel the same way. I think it was a mistake. He could have left out on top, man. You know, crushing yeah. Fox News number. He said, I'm out. Drop mic, walk away. You got nothing but a good story to tell. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the same at the end of this year. It's the end of an election cycle. Announcing a year in advance that you're going to leave, that's never really a great thing unless you really need to work on your succession, unless there's nobody there to replace him and he's really going to focus on doing that. All it really does is give people a year to backbite and infight and angle and see you as sort of a lame duck but still powerful. So, you know, at the end of an election year is a really good time to to make a change. And uh, I think he made a mistake. He won't regret it. It's no big deal. He'll make money. They'll be at some level of success, I'm sure, come the end of 2021. But I think he was right the first time. You know, uh, there are times when when the heads of companies will do this after they have tried to get out previously uh, as a way of forcing the hand of the company they work for, the board or, or something where they say, look, no, I'm seriously leaving. In fact, I'm saying it publicly so that now You'll look foolish if I'm still here three years from now. I know Ron, <laughs> Ron Meyer tried to to leave Universal several times and wound up kind of taking you know one role after hemorrhitis. Another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and there was some talk last year about whether that's what Robert Iger was doing when he suddenly, all of a sudden, left Disney, left the CEO ship, so to speak. Of He was no longer the CEO; he became chairman or executive chairman. Like, oh, he did that because they didn't want him to to talk him into staying again. And of course, now we know, well, he also saw the, you know, coronavirus showing up at his doorstep. So he was like, yep, I'm out. Gotta go. Bye. Anyway, uh, next <laughs> next tag, you're it. Uh, so, but you know, who knows? Uh, it, why it's cute that you think CEOs could have shame. <laughs> that they would be sh- like, like, of course I'm still in charge. Why wouldn't I be? Yeah. Well, anyway, speaking of being in charge, okay, that was a horrible transition because that this next story has nothing to do with that. With being speaking in of shame, people write in and say Michael's wrong. Does he feel shame? No, <laughs> he never <laughs> feels shame. Uh, anyway, TikTok is finally legit. It's legitimately something I don't know anything about. That's for sure. <laughs> and well, perhaps your, your daughters do. Your daughters that, that, do. That is true. In fact, as they were watching uh, the Super Bowl halftime show last night, they went, "Oh, this guy totally benefited from TikTok. Like his songs are all over TikTok. He, the reason he's here is because of TikTok." I was like, "Well, no, you got that backwards. Yeah, TikTok yeah. benefited from him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know what? Perhaps TikTok is too legit to quit." As we're talking here, the short form video service touts its power in the music industry. Countless songs and acts have enjoyed a boost via fan created memes around their songs. Case in point, Old Town Road, a TikTok sensation that became one of the biggest hits of all time. And there he was. uh, There he was in a Super Bowl ad. That's true. The only Mm -hmm. problem was that TikTok was making hay out of popular music, but not really paying for the privilege that's finally changed this week when universal became the final major to sign a global licensing deal with the app that follows deals the company signed in recent months with sony and warner brothers big deal or big whoop it's a big deal they needed to do it they should have done it long ago they were profiting from music that they weren't paying for and i'm glad it's happened i hope it benefits artists and now we can go on tiktok with a clear conscience sperling so i think you should start the mc hammer too legit to quit start doing 10 second videos where you're making that sign that little thing all the time it'll catch on like wildfire everybody yeah too legit to quit or just maybe i should just sit in a chair huddled up like i'm cold with my mittens on oh wait no that's if you're if you're world famous that will work 
Yes. And if I'm at a, apparently a presidential inauguration. Um, now yes. I, I do wonder though, you know, these videos, if they're under 20 seconds, that's kind of fair use, right? I mean, I guess not when you're making money off of it. So if you say, look, don't make money off my videos, they'll be under 20 seconds and you know, just don't make any money off of them. So you're not making money. It, you're kind of adding to it creatively. I mean, I, I, I do agree that TikTok should be paying for these songs. Absolutely. But I do wonder, gee, at what point did it not become fair use? I guess when it goes past 20 seconds, obviously, uh, when you're starting to make money off of it, which is what TikTok is doing. Yep. That, but that's that kind of like fair use stuff and those rules. That's kind of, that's in the weeds, so to speak. Ah, it must be time for Inside Baseball. Yes, indeed. That Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business. More importantly, how they affect you. And guess what? This week's story won't affect you at all. Not at yeah. all. Because what? we've got a few letters. We got some letters. A debate, I guess, Michael, you and I had two weeks ago concerning box office. And really not even box office, but ticket sales and inflation and, and whether and population even. Uh, today, I just happened to randomly choose two of them uh, that back me up completely. Yes, I just randomly. I, actually, no, these were the two. <laughs> we got a, a couple of them. and. One of them was so in-depth, I actually had to go to my children and say, guys, you're in math class, right? Can you explain this linear? <laughs> like, So they sat down and actually explained it to me. And I was like, I said, I just want you to know, this is a lesson to you. Don't ever tell your teachers, I'll never use this again in my life. When am I ever going to use this trigonometry? Guess what? You use it. <laughs> We've got two letters. One is from James Gardner in Australia. The other one is from... David Watkins in New York City. We thank both of them. We've got the entire letters that they sent in our show notes. I'm going to read them to you, but I'm going to skip over a little bit of the math when I feel like I can be helpful by not sort of getting deep in the weeds. That sort of stuff is easier to read than to hear. But here we go. Hello, Michael, says James Gardner. Unfortunately, your understanding of the graph on the numbers website is very misguided. Ooh, that hurts. The trend... <laughs> over the last 20 years is shrinking attendance, even with a modest population growth rate of half a percent to 1% a year. This indicates a set of the last 20 years. At the same time as negative attendance growth annually has occurred, that it hasn't grown as much as population, at the same time, gross income has grown significantly, meaning even though people go less, they pay more. This is what is commonly seen as a downward spiral. Prices go up significantly, fueling fuel fewer patrons, which means they raise prices again, which means there are even fewer patrons. It's called a downward spiral. As a business person, I look at this and think, how long before we hit the tipping point? It must be said, this is an established, highly screened market problem. What he's saying is that the movie-going industry in the United States is a mature market, right? We've got all the screens we can use. People have been going for years. It's a very mature business. It's not going to grow by leaps and bounds anymore. He says, underscreened under and green markets are still a huge opportunity. So yes, cinema as a business is safe, but a lot of historical locations and regions are in for a recalibration. All the US and Australia, where I am from, are two good examples of that. This trend is also very much why the studios have stated they are going to where the people are, streaming, as this trend down is very much attributed to a change in generational behavior. Older people who go to the cinema a lot are dying off while the next generation are streaming more and more and playing online games. They still go to the cinema, but less. 
As for years, business people would have seen this reckoning coming. The pandemic has just made the studios decide to focus on the needs of the upcoming generation of consumers. As Disney has said, they are going all in on streaming as that's where the people are. So please do not blindly stipulate that this trend means nothing. It may be 1% per year, but compounding before you know it, you're in big trouble. The more interesting effect of all of this is the likely change in the business model of cinemas. Windows, terms, etc. are likely to change. And in fact, they already have begun to. And that, again, could have a significant effect on the business of cinema, the size of screens, the number of screens, etc. However, I expect this will take some time as the incumbents will not want to adjust their models to these new ramifications as they have sunk costs that they want to keep relevant. How long that will take? No idea. Regards, James Gardner. How much did you pay him? Uh, James, the check is in the mail. It is going <laughs> to be adjusted down for inflation, down 1% over a 20-year period. So he's absolutely right. Over the last 20 years, uh, ticket sales have not kept pace with uh, population growth, which is something I've said for a long time. I'm usually thinking about the last 50 years, but it turns out I'm not really exactly right there either. So James is actually right. A modest change year to year adds up very, very quickly. Uh, so, Well, I won't know. say quickly because here's the thing. It isn't quick, really. And that's what right. I, I, I learned it through, th through these two emails is that it took nearly 20 years. And he's right. It is 1% down per year admissions on a linear regression scale, which means that you're actually drawing a straight line from one point to another. By the way, that never happens. Just look at the stock market. It never goes just straight down or straight up. Uh, it's it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, it looks like a, a heartbeat monitor. Uh, so, but, you know, over 20 years, yes, on, you know, on average, it's going down 1% right. a year. Admission. So to be specific, if, if, we, if we choose exactly 20, 2000 and 2020, the population has grown 15% over the, those years. Okay. But ticket sales have not grown 15%. If they had grown 15%, we would be seeing ticket sales in the range of 1.4 billion to 1.5 billion. During those 20 years, four of those years, we did that. 1.4 to 1.5 billion should be the new normal. But it's not. Yes, yet. it should be. But, but we've achieved it. We've done it more so in the last 10 years. So we're getting closer to that. But if you look at all 20 years overall, you can see and where we are in 2019 and in 2018 that we were down a little bit from those peak years. So that is absolutely true. We have not kept pace with uh, population growth in the last 20 years. Uh, there's something to do a longer stream. Another thing he said was he said, where is it? It's come the downward spiral. He said prices go up significantly, fueling fewer patrons, which means they raise the prices, which means you have fewer patrons. Eventually, you need one person to go to the movie once a week and you charge them $10 million or you're out of business. <laughs> um, have ticket prices gone up in the last 20 years, Sperling? Do you think they have? I think that it depends on where you live, first of all. But I think on average, when you're taking a national average, I think that as a portion of someone's salary, no, they, no, no, they no. have just not the gone prices. up. No, not as a portion of your salary. Ticket prices are a, a figure provided by NATO, the North American theater owners, and they basically take the box office total, they divide it by the number of tickets sold, and say that is the ticket price. It's not a good measure. It's extremely no, no. They wrong. also do a survey. They they do a survey of their of their well for decades members. past. That was all they did. 
But they don't give us a break, a granular breakdown and tell us how many kids tickets were sold, how many premium tickets, how many matinees. They don't do that. So we only get one rough number, but it's the only one we have. Right. Right. And so when you look at it, it's kept pace with inflation. So. Well, so now if we go back to 1970 and the early, the mid seventies is when we really hit the modern era. You can see we go back, we have ticket prices going back to 1971. If you adjust for inflation in 1971, the average ticket price was $10 and 16 cents. Then over the next really uh, 30 years, you saw tickets trending down a little bit until you hit the year 2000. So for 30 years, ticket prices in real dollars adjusting for inflation actually went down. And why would that be? If you think about it, what was going on in the 70s and 80s? Crappy movie going, crappy movie going. You had screens with scratchy prints. You had theaters that were once big palaces cut into two or four screens. I remember going to the movies as a kid and you're watching a drama and the action film next door, you can hear the explosion. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was a really bad moving going experience for decades. And it was a really poor experience and theaters were just coasting. And even when they converted to multiplexes, they did it in a cheap way with really bad sound and picture quality. In the 90s with THX from George Lucas and into the 2000s, theaters really began investing in their theaters again. We are at a golden age of movie going. You've got stadium seating. You've got cup holders. You've got peerless picture quality, thanks to digital cinema, great sound. I mean, going to the movies today is exponentially better an experience than it was when I was a kid. And as they started spending that money and made going to the movies better and better, plus, of course, you've got premium screens, blah, 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 all that stuff. When they did that, they started raising prices. So once you hit 2000, adjusting for inflation, tickets were $8. That's like 20% lower than they were in 1971. And then in 2010, they went up to 925. 2019, they've titched back down again to $9.16. We still haven't hit the peak that we were at in the beginnings of the 70s. But you can see now that theaters are investing in their own cinema again, ticket prices are going back up. But really, not that much. People always well, think movie ticket prices are a ton, but you can go, if you're not in New York City, going to a IMAX screen in 3D, you can go to matinees, you can go to Tuesdays for $5 Tuesdays, you can go to a drive-in and see a double feature. There are a lot of ways to go to a movie economically still today in 2021. Well, and even, you know, I went to see a movie in Albany, New York, and the, the ticket price was like $10. And that was the right. ticket price. Like, that, like, that was like a Saturday night. I was like, wow, okay, that's pretty good, actually. Exactly. Pretty good. And you go now, to, a, mat- you go to a matinee. A lot of people you go to a matinee. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Well, but, you know, not everybody can go to a matinee. So, you you know, a lot of people look at prices in New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco, and yes, they are higher. It's Chicago, oh, higher. Yeah. You're paying $15, and, $16. Dollars. You, mm-hmm. Now, you're also paying twenty twenty five at these premium deluxe will wait on you type movie theaters like uh Cinepolis USA has some luxury right. theaters Which that are twenty twenty five dollars. Right. And I yeah. don't go there. And, and I don't go to IMAX and I don't <laughs> go to those things. I'm in New York City and I can still go cheaper than that. There are matinees now in New York City, which there weren't for years. Or there's, you know, the monthly fees. But the fact is most of the media people live in the big cities and all they remember is 20 bucks to go see this movie on IMAX on a Saturday night. It's like, that's not the experience for most Americans. And while we feel like ticket prices are so big and so much bigger than ever, they're not. They've trended up a little bit. But if you adjust for inflation, ticket prices really have not budged in 50 years. Very modestly, 10% increases over a decade. 
or even going back down again, 2020, 2010 to 2019, ticket prices even titched back down again. Why? I think because of the less 3D stuff and less of surcharges and things like that. So ticket prices have not, I don't believe, looking at the broad picture, not just comparing it to the early 70s, but even if you look at it, tickets have gone up a little bit, very, very modestly, basically keeping pace with inflation, as we've been saying on the show for a long time. I mean, we talked about population growth yeah. and adjusting for inflation that ticket prices are not out of control. We like to have them be smaller. We like the idea of a movie pass and things like that, but they are not rising significantly by, I don't think, by any reasonable measure. So if you look at that, I don't think that is as true. But he's absolutely right. The population growth and ticket sales have not kept pace with each other. Ticket sales are not keeping pace with population growth, looking at it overall. And when he says, you know, box office has gone up, uh, or that might be the next guy. I think that is. I think that's David actually David Watkins. Let's get to his letter. Hey, hello, Sandboxers. I have been listening to you on and off for a couple of years now. Thank you. We really appreciate that. We like, as the, a financial we like it more the on parts than the off parts, by the way. Just <laughs> Yeah. As a financial <laughs> analyst focusing primarily on the media industry, I find some of the topics you cover relevant. Cool. Over the past year or so, I've been required to shift the majority of the work I do to streaming for obvious reasons. I hadn't thought about box office returns since the middle of last year, except for when you talk about them. Let's pause for a second. This is a player in the industry who's focused almost entirely on streaming. Isn't that telling? Isn't it? I mean, it's like, wow, yeah. that's a big change. You talk about how streaming is dominating the way contracts are written in TV, uh, the way we think about movies and where movies should be going and how much money they're making and where studios are going to make their money in the future. That's a real sea change. So, oh, wait, back to David. On this week's episode, this is two weeks ago, the two of you got into a debate about whether movie theater attendance in the North American market has gone up or down or remained steady since 2002. This seems to be a regular topic between you two. I'm not sure who was saying that it had not declined because I sometimes can't tell the difference between your two voices. That's terrible. What do you mean you can't tell the difference between our voices? <laughs> David, I'm the guy who says reasonable, smart, insightful things. Sperling is the guy who doesn't. I'm going to start speaking in a French accent from now on so you can tell. Oh, bonjour, David. I've always been so tuned into recent or near. No, okay. So please, love of God, I have always been so tuned into recent or near-term corporate financials that I rarely go back more than five to 10 years, but you got me thinking. So I decided to plop the recorded attendance since 2002. Perhaps I could settle this debate once and for all with a little statistical math. No matter how you crunch the numbers, any data scientist worth their salt would say that attendance is declining. You're welcome, Sperling. They would also tell you, Never work in averages. Just about every regression model employed, no matter what type of model, shows the numbers decreasing over time. It's probably most notable in a simple linear regression, as most regressions usually are, because the line can be seen descending at what looks like a steady slope. That's also one of the reasons we often start with simple linear regressions, but quickly move on to more detailed models that allow for granularity. What we're looking at in such cases is not whether there's any growth after a decline, that is a rise after a fall, but the level of growth in comparison to previous entries before the decline. I'll keep the math to a minimum here, but we're not concerned with whether the attendance rose after decline or even by how much it rose after decline, but how that rise compares to the numbers in years prior to the decline. It's an issue where you want to look and just not compare one year to the next, but you want to look at W, X, Y, and Z, where if in year Z you saw growth 
after declining your Y, you then want to say, well, how do we do in W and X? Pausing for a second. Now, this is what you and I say all the time, isn't it, Sperling? When yes. we get to a year-end box office, what do we say? We say, look, we don't say, just compare yeah, this to last year. Or, <laughs> it, yeah, look, look in general. Look, look over a long period of time. How are we doing? And that's right. really in what's 2018. Important. We had the highest grossing year of all time in North America, 11.9 or 11.8 billion. And we said, look, next year it's going to decline, and people are going to yell and scream and say, "Ah, oh, the box office is going down. Oh no, movies are dead." And what happened the following year? It declined compared to the highest grossing year of all time. We said, yes, it's less than last year. It's also the second highest grossing year of all time. That is not a problem. That is not a bad thing. You have to put it into perspective. Furthermore, we say, hey, look, if you release 500 movies and they all cost a billion dollars, maybe they all failed. So it doesn't, it wasn't a good year. It doesn't matter what the box office is at if every movie you release is a flop and costs too much. On the other hand, if you release 20 less movies that year from big studios with big budgets, and they all succeed. Maybe box office declined, but they were smarter about the movies they made, and each one of them made money, and audiences were happy. That's a good thing. Maybe not for exhibitors. We want to fill those seats. But, you know, we always talk about that. You got to put in attendance. So David's absolutely right here. W, X, Y, and Z. Don't just say it declined compared to last year or arose compared to last year. Huzzah. You got to look at the bigger picture. All right, so here's David again. However, I should say, whoever was saying that there was not a steady decline in attendance was correct. Finally, it would only be seen as steady if each year is lower than the year previous. So while attendance from 2002 has declined linearly, it's not steady, which is characteristic of regressions found in mature markets or at the peak of a product life cycle. I should also highlight that there is declining, which can happen slowly, and then there is plummeting, which happens all at once. Just as GameStop last week learned, there is rising, which can occur over a long period of time, and skyrocketing, which happens in a day. The rate of regression in movie theater attendance on a simple, linear basis since 2002 will be declared at negative 0.012%. That's hardly plummeting. Now, you also mentioned that attendance has kept pace with population growth. I was wrong. This is a much easier question to answer now that we have the regression figures for attendance. According to the Census Bureau, the U.S. population grew at 14.93% between 2002 and 2019, or as I call it, 15%. Obviously, the population and attendance figures do not correlate since populations rose by nearly 15% over a 19-year time frame, while attendance very slightly declined during that period. Hopefully, I haven't confused you with too much math and you found this helpful. Keep up the good work. David Watkins, New York City. David, thank you very much for writing. Sperling, thoughts? I would like to thank David for uh, causing me to go again to my daughters and sit down and, uh, first of all, try and figure out what all of this math meant, uh, forcing them to do it with me, and then teaching them a valuable lesson that math is indeed necessary after you graduate from high school. So you better start paying attention in math class. All right. So uh, the, the argument I was making was not about whether had attendance had declined or ticket sales had declined since 2002. My argument was that, that it was complete BS for them to choose 2002 as their starting point. Uh, the original article we linked to at the numbers, the chart, was a chart covering 25 years from 1995 to 2020. Then the article talked about how for almost two decades, that attendance had been dropping. 
And But the year they actually chose to measure against was 2002, which happens to be the single biggest year for ticket sales in modern box office history. It may even be the biggest year of all time. We sold 1.5 billion tickets in 2002. We've never sold that many before or since. And as any data scientist will tell you, to get a little snarky here, when somebody has a starting point, you want to look and say, why did they choose that starting point? If you're looking at a chart over 25 years and they say, well, compared to 2002, and you look and you say, that's the peak. That is the absolute peak. They've never hit that again. And most years fall between 1.3 and 1.4 billion tickets over the almost two decades that they're talking about. So that peak is a really poor place to measure, as would be the bottom. You don't want to compare it to the lowest year for ticket sales in the last 20 years. And why are you showing us a chart for 25 years if you want to focus on a 17-year period, which would be a bizarre choice? You know right away they're up to something when they show you a 17-year spread. You go, well, why did they choose 17 years? They better explain it, and they better have a good reason why. They're choosing the peak year of ticket sales in all of modern box office history. For the last 15 years, the one year that we sold more tickets than any other was 2002. So choosing that as the measurement against which you measure another year is BS. Just like he says, don't just compare Y and Z. You say, don't just compare your sales this year to the peak year ever. (laughs) That's not a reasonable measurement. Or if it is, you need to know and explain why. So, uh, you know. Well, look at at just 1995 up to 2002. What's interesting to me about that, right, Mm -hmm. when you look at it, is that in 1995, you had 1.2 billion tickets sold. And a steady march of an increase, for the most mm-hmm. part, a little blip here and there, uh, to 2002 when you had 1.575, it was it, that would be a linear regression that was increasing over time, right? Right. Right. Uh, so, and and then you have it going down. For instance, look at between well 2018 and 2019. I know those are only two years, but right. you're, you're missing a hundred million tickets between 2018 with 1.3 billion and right. 2019 with 1.2 billion. So I ask, and this is, this is why I'm saying all of this, really at the end of the day, what's really interesting to me is what, what is causing this? What allows us and, and what causes these peaks? It's the content. And in 2009, why did you have, have 1.4 billion tickets sold? Avatar. Because everybody raced out to see Avatar. And in mm-hmm. 2016, why did you have 1.3 billion tickets sold? And 2015, 1.3 billion tickets sold? Because of Star Wars coming back. And I, I would say you should really also say about the top 50 movies. It isn't ever about just one movie. It's always a bunch of movies. You know, one well, movie can't carry t- the box office on their shoulder. But yeah, I just think it's important to say it ain't about one movie. No, but the reason I picked 2018 good, as my, mm-hmm. uh, is because you had Black Panther, Avengers Endgame. You had, right. you know, you had all of these movies. And Avengers movie, Endgame, the highest grossing film of all time. And can I tell you what came out in, it's, you want to take all of those movies? I'd love to mm-hmm. take all of those movies. Let's look at the top 10 from 2002, okay? Let's think back 20 years, and, and let's take a ride with me. Spider-Man, okay? The first Spider-Man came out in 2002. The first movie was the number one movie. The number two movie, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, okay? And the second Lord of the Rings movie, and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, right? I yes, think that big, big successful movies make mean big box office. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so these big movies can't ice age the very first ice age movie. 
They have right. all these great movies coming out. You know what? You put great movies in movie theaters and only Attack let- of the Clones. Attack of the Clones is not oh. a great movie. Okay. <laughs> but Black Panther and I'm saying right. put, yes. put good movies in movie theaters and only in a specific place and say, look, if you want this content, you can only get it one way. And yes, sales will increase. It's the same as if you said, I don't know, I have this iPhone and I'm only going to sell it through one wireless carrier, AT&T. Guess what? AT&T sales went up. You could only get that iPhone from 2007 to 2011. That was like four years. You could only get it through one carrier. And Mm -hmm. during that time, AT&T subscriptions went up for that reason. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are the, when you've got big movies, you're going to have success. But in the long term trends, we've seen ticket sales have not increased dramatically, not by any stretch of the imagination. Or have they decreased dramatically? No, nor should they. You know, that's a, it's yeah. a mature market. People still love movies. They love going. And the experience of going to the movies is better than ever. So they're really getting good value for their money in certain ways. I still don't want to pay $22 in New York City, but, you know, you can avoid that. Population has grown. Uh, ticket sales have not kept pace with population, but the but the bottom has not fallen out of the market either. So you're not seeing it's still a good, vibrant business. But when you look at say U.S. population 1980 to 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 now, the population has grown 46 percent. That means ticket sales should have grown 46 percent. Not hasn't happened. However, uh, we should be selling 1.4 billion tickets to keep pace with that population growth today. Well. We're, we're doing like 1.3 billion, right? That's like or a 1. 30, 1. 1.2, 1.31, right, right. 1.2. 30% 1. increase over 1980. So it's not keeping it. However, 1980 is not a great year to use. Same thing with box office grosses. In 1980, we grossed $1.6 billion or about $5 billion if you adjust for inflation. That means box office from 1980 to 2019, it's doubled. It's 100%. It's way better than population growth or ticket price sales. But that's a bad year to choose. If you look at the 1980s, as I did, you realize there was a sea change in movie going from like 1977 into the early 80s, and then it really took off. Star Wars, E.T., all these movies were really making box office explode like never before. 1979, we sold $1.2 billion in box office grosses. I'm not adjusting for inflation right now. 1980, $1.6 billion. 1981, trended down $900 million, almost a billion dollars, but down quite a bit from 1980. People were probably yelling and screaming. But 1982, box office hit $3 billion. 300% increase over 1981, almost double the, the percentage do, of 1980. Do you know why that is? Two and, a half, two and a half times bigger than 1979. Well, I'll tell you, it's not one individual movie because 1982 and on, $3 billion, $3 billion, $3 billion, $4 billion. There was a sea change in movie going, the blockbuster summer blockbuster, the number of widescreen releases, the excitement of movies, a lot of big hit films. We can name a dozen of them, but there was a huge, significant sea change in the amount of money being made at the box office over just a three, four year period, and it remained steady after that. So if I want to be honest with our listeners and I want to compare the box office today to the early 80s, I'm not going to go to 1980 where we grossed $1.6 billion. I'm not going to go there to 1980 when we sold X number of tickets. I'm going to look at 1982 because that's a much fairer barometer of what box office was like throughout most of the 80s. And when you do that, when you look at 1982, that's almost $8 billion if you adjust for inflation, right? Uh, $8 billion. All right. So 1982 to today, well, that's that's not as much, right? Uh, Population has grown 46%. Box office has grown since 1982 about 
39% maybe since 1982. That's not, that's not as much, but it's not the tickets falling out either. It's not a complete collapse. Ticket prices have increased about, uh, where is it? Uh, about 18% since 1982, something like that. So again, ticket prices have remained low. They have not nearly increased the same prices. Based you know, for as inflation, in- on inflation. Right. Yeah. Population growth, box office has not kept pace, but it's close. It's pretty close. And we know that we should be hitting 1.4 to 1.4. But wait a second, if you've po- gone down we, we, to linear, I'm not going to get into the linear of it all. But if no, you, no, no. We, 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 in 1982, we sold adjusted for inflation about $8 billion in box office. We're, we should, we're doing $10, $10 billion now, $11 billion regularly. So that's up from 1982. It's not as up as much as it could be, but it's up significantly. You know, it's from $8 billion to $11 billion. We're at like mid-30s percentage increase. That's not as much as the population growth. So it's not keeping pace with population, but it's still growing. It's pretty damn good given from 1982 onwards, suddenly people could rent movies on VHS and then they could buy them and That's then they right. could buy DVDs. They could buy them on digital. They can turn on their TV and access 10,000 different movies anytime, day or night. And yet the box office is still a great business and it drives all those other markets. So both David and James are right. I was wrong about population growth uh, about nineteen, about 2000 to today. I do think that that comparison to 2002 is misleading. I think overall, we have not kept pace with population, but we're doing pretty damn good. We're lagging behind, but 35%, that's not bad. If we hit 1.4 to 1.5 billion tickets, as we've done four times in the last decade, well, then by God, you know, where we are keeping pace with population. Can I make a prediction? Ticket sales. Yeah. Can I make a prediction? So I'm going to end on a positive note. Please. Please. So in 2020, which is a year we will, uh, we should always compare to because uh, only 223 million tickets were sold. 224 million. Let's just call it that. Okay. Well, what year? 2020, last year. Oh, 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't compare <laughs> anything to last year. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We're yeah. going to go. <laughs> Here's where I will compare it. In the first two months of the year, 100% of movie theaters were open. Okay. Mm-hmm. 224 million tickets were sold over a 12-month period of time. And again, not all movie theaters were open all the time. In LA County, they shut down in March and never reopened. In 2021, to date, only 38% at the peak, only 38% of available screens have been open. Okay. Yeah. We've already sold 112 million tickets by the first week of, so half the entire number of 2020. Then, now this is anecdotal. Well, most of those were done in the January and February, though. Yes, correct. You know, yeah, yeah, well, you know. Well, no, I mean, what about uh, Tenet? What Very, about yeah. the Croods? That, that was, a, yeah, not a lot, yeah. But, okay, so then, uh, this is my, pre- now I'm going to do some predicting based on an anecdote. There was a, an, an NPR, National Public Radio story, about teenagers who are now a part of the vaccine trials. And they interviewed one of these teenagers who was 16 and she was asked, are you happy that you're a part of this trial? What makes you happy about it? And she said, I just can't wait to get back to doing, you know, I'm missing out on so many experiences. And of course, that sounded like a very teenager thing for mm-hmm. her to say. So the, the journalist said, okay, well, like, what kind of, ex- like, what are you missing out on? And she said, well, like, I'm missing out on, like, hanging out with my friends. Okay. And I guess at that point, the teenager realized, oh, that did not sound very smart. That, does. So she, that sounds great. What's wrong with so, that? So she immediately, this teenager, immediately threw in, oh, and going to restaurants and movies and going to movies. 
And yeah. I said, okay, so there you go. There it is. I My prediction is that there will be a huge pop. It might not happen in 2021. It might happen in 2022. But there will be no a huge doubt that the huge people are dying to go out again to yeah. eat and dying to go out to the movies. Absolutely. I, you're absolutely right. I don't I think that's even a prediction so much as something we can assume. How long it will last? Will it take us to a new level or bring us just back to where we were? I think it's going to bring us to 2002. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I, I certainly hope so. But again, thank you, James. We really appreciate your insight. You're uh, holding our hands while you walk us through the math. You're absolutely right about uh, attendance declining. And sure, it hasn't been steady, but I was wrong. It has been declining. Uh, I never would say, well, it's got to be a steady, complete fall every single year. or It's not steadily declining. That would be silly. That almost never happens in the real world. And you're right to point out that overall, that is declining. And, and thank that, you, David. Yes. Mm-hmm. David Watkins. Yeah, I was going to say David Watkins yeah. did that math for us. As well. Yes, he did. The W, X, Y, and Z. Yeah, they both did math. They both did math for us, and we appreciate it. I will be sending David Watkins my taxes to do because apparently he knows how to do math. So <laughs> Christopher Plummer won't be doing his taxes anymore. He died oh. at the age of 91. He's a star of stage and screen. He won an Oscar, two Tonys, two Emmys. Over a long and distinguished career, he was born in Canada the same year as my mother. She just turned 92, and he spent a lifetime delving into Shakespeare. Great stage actor. I, I don't know if I ever saw him on stage, unfortunately. Long associated with the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Ontario, Canada. He returned there again and again over the years to great success. He just played Prospero there back in 2010 when he was about 81 or 80 years old. At the National Theatre in London? Bit of a rascal, bit of a pain in the neck, Christopher Plummer. He was fired by the cast of Coriolanus and replaced by Anthony Hopkins for being such a jerk. <laughs> he really was. Uh, the New York Times described him as charm and arrogance in equal measure. That kind of captures his aura. And to his frustration, of course, he is best known as the Captain Von Trapp from the sugary blockbuster The Sound of Music. Hollywood reporter called their headline, he called him the chagrined star of The Sound of Music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It was he, only his form. Yeah, he, he really hated, not. He, he hated being associated with. Like he said, it was like it was great at the time, but like you know, forty no, years he hated, later, he hated it at the time too. Uh, but he became friends with Julie Andrews later in life. He was a pain on the set, I'm sure, though she won't say that. It was only his fourth film role, but he made other good movies like the slapsticky The Return of the Pink Panther with Blake Edwards, The Man Who Would Be King, one of my favorite films. He had a small role as Rudyard Kipling, Somewhere in Time, Malcolm X, Twelve Monkeys, The Insider, where he played Mike Wallace. Great performance there. Syriana. The New World, Up, The Last Station, and Beginners in 2010, which our in-house film critic says is a, a fine late career peak for him to win an Oscar on. At the time, he was the oldest person to win the Oscar, but he wasn't done. He followed that with All the Money in the World, for which he was nominated at the age of 88, also a record, and of course, the droll murder mystery Knives Out. That's a great way to end your career. Nice, big, fat, critically acclaimed hit. And uh, But it was really about the theater for him. Uh, Christopher Plummer said, as T.S. Eliot measures his life with coffee spoons, so I measure mine by the plays I've been in. I did not know that T.S. Eliot measured his life with coffee spoons. What if he used the same spoon day after day after? I used the same spoon. So, And I don't put anything in my coffee, so now what? I'm going to be the same age forever. Hey, what is that over there? The ladies are coming and going, speaking of Michelangelo. Oh, well, anyway, keep going. Well, okay. I guess we could talk about uh, Emmy winner and production designer Roy Christopher. He died at the age of 86. That's right. He won He won 10 Emmys. He was nominated for 37 of them. He created the set designs for shows like Murphy Brown, Frasier, and Wings. But who cares? 
He put a couch in a room. So what? I'm sure he did important work. I don't appreciate it, but I'm sure it's good. But that's not important. His legacy is the work Christopher did for award shows, including the Tonys, but especially the Academy Awards. He, did he created 16. the look, 16 of them. That's a lot of giant Oscar statues. That's a lot of glitter, a lot of movie camera logos and things. So, you know, more than any other production designer in history, the modern Academy Awards are in our minds because of Roy Christopher. And Oscar winner and film editor Robert C. Jones died at the age of 84. He was part of a film editing dynasty. His father, Harmon Jones, was an Oscar nominee for the Ely Kazan film Gentleman's Agreement. His daughter, Leslie Jones, was an Oscar nominee for Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Great movie. And Robert C. Jones won an Oscar for screenwriting. Strangely enough, he was a film editor, but he won for screenwriting. He was a longtime collaborator with director Arthur Hiller, who for whom he cut eight terrible movies, one of which was the <laughs> huge, huge smash hit Love Story. We're sure the editing made it better. He by, the way, by the way, uh-huh. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. highest grossing movie of 1970. Oh, absolutely. Like $140 million worldwide. He yeah. also collaborated with director Hal Ashby on three very good films. He cut The Last Detail, Shampoo, and Bound for Glory, all of which are good. He turned down the chance to edit the Oscar-winning film Coming Home, but he ended up working on the screenplay and sharing an Oscar with two others. He also worked with Warren Beatty on Heaven Can Wait, Bullworth, and Love Affair, which deserves an award of its own right there. That can't be easy. With Warren <laughs> making a decision in the editing room, uh, let's go back to the other one. Uh, let's go back to the other one. Oh, my God. Uh, but he worked on the screenplay for Hal Ashby's Being There and got a co-writing credit from the studio. But the WGA denied him credit in arbitration or something, and it went strictly to author Jerzy Kaczynski alone, breaking Jones's heart. He stuck to editing forever after that. No more screenwriting for Robert C. Jones. But a good career, great daughter with great talent, great dad. So a cool, fascinating career with a tangent into screenwriting. Which I think, you know, yeah, that is a frustration to many screenwriters who actually seek the credit when they then, you know, now they actually have very strict rules and there's a whole uh, governing uh a way they govern that based on the amount and the percentage, Mm -hmm. which there was then too, but it was far, far looser. And, uh, you know, when you're editing, it's like, no, you did it. You got paid. Yeah. You're the editor or you're not. Yeah. And you know, when Jersey Kaczynski wrote the novel, the movie was based on, I'm sure they gave that far more weight than they should have. Like, well, he wrote the novel. You know, right. so he gets 99% of the credit. So there you go. Too bad, but not to worry. Uh, that's a great movie. We know he was involved in it and he worked on a lot of, lot of really good movies. And of course, a pop cultural touchstone <sighs> love story. <laughs> well, we're a pop culture touchstone, aren't we? That we are indeed. Okay. Wow. That t- you had to think about that. Okay. Well, you know what? Since you, you want to make sure you hear every single episode, which usually are not as long as these last two episodes. Have and, been. and you get to find out how often I've been wrong. That's always fun. And, and you get to figure out, I really should not uh, try and do math. Uh, <laughs> you can, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes, uh, the Google podcast manager. I don't know what that thing is called now. You can subscribe to us on Google somehow. Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they get Spotify, Spotify. That is true. I keep forgetting Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Uh, Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find all those ways to subscribe to us. And please do rate and review us in any podcast aggregator. It helps us out when you do. Uh, Links to all those stories. On our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. 888-567-7263 is our 
voicemail number, our phone number. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt can be found online every week, and every week he's got something new and exciting for us. I, I, I want to ask, what is it this week? But if it's not Edelweiss.com, I'm going to be very disappointed. Michael, oh, what is it this week, not, Michael? That, that's a good one. Maybe you can find Sperling's work there. Me, you can find at lovemeansneverhavingtosayyoursorry.com. I have no idea what that's a reference to, that's but... from Love, Love Story. Oh. That was the sappy, iconic line from the movie. Love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> I'm going to use like, that now. I'm going to use that all the it time. Didn't, it didn't even work in 1970. People are like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, you try it. You try it. Let us know how that goes next week. Adelvice.com okay. is good, too. Yeah, well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that particular love story website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 